Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Not there yet in the war in Ukraine, in recovering from an environmental disaster in Ohio, in coming to terms with social media, or in taming inflation. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on whether the Fed has the tools it needs to deal with inflation. We've got an extremely difficult economy to read. Former National Security Advisor Tom Donilon on how the war in Ukraine has changed investment behavior. Any analysis, right, with respect to with respect to investing has to take into account now geopolitics in ways that you might not have before. And Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital on the future of digital payments after FTX. This week, it wasn't so much about what's been finished as it was about what's yet to be finished, starting with the war in Ukraine, one year old as of this Friday, which took President Biden to the region. We'll hold accountable those who are responsible for this war and will seek justice for the war crimes and crimes against humanity continuing to be committed by the Russians. With Russian President Putin providing his alternative view of events. They are to blame for unleashing the war, and we are doing our best, our utmost, to stop the war. 
It wasn't a war that took Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and former President Donald Trump to Ohio, but an environmental disaster from a train derailment that spilled toxic chemicals through the small community of East Palestine, with the cleanup far from finished. A long way to go, a long way to go uh, before uh, we're at the finish line. It will be months and years uh, before the residents of that community are, uh, are going to feel safe in their homes and in their community. At the Supreme Court, there were two days of oral arguments trying to sort out just when, if ever, social media companies might be held responsible for terrible acts arguably encouraged by videos and tweets posted on their sites with Justice Elena Kagan summing up how difficult it is for the Supreme Court to draw lines around the internet. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. And then there was the Federal Reserve, which released the minutes from its January meeting, which markets had been eagerly anticipating, but in the end didn't really change much the path we thought the Fed was on. The minutes say the participants agreed the risks were still to the downside for economic activity. They worried about an unexpected negative shock that could, quote, tip the economy into recession in an environment of subdued growth. But then on Friday, core PCE numbers came in hotter than expected, delivering a clearer message to the markets that rates are likely to be higher for longer, leaving the S&P 500 down almost 2.7% for the week, while the Nasdaq lost 3.3%. And what equities lost, bond yields gained, with the yield on the 10-year up 12 basis points to end the week at 3.94. To explain it all to us, we welcome now Greg Peters. He's PGM co-CIO for Fixed Income, and Lizanne Saunders, Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist. Welcome back, both of you. Good to have you here. So, Lizanne, let me start with you. Are the markets starting to come to terms with what's likely to come? And if so, what is likely to come? So, yeah, I, I do think that the stock market is going through a bit of a, of a reset. Uh, you know, there, there's the... You know, old phrase, um, actually coined by my first boss in this business, the late great Marty Zweig, who was part of the original Wall Street Week for, for many, many years. And he coined the phrase, don't fight the Fed. And I've been getting a lot of questions. Do you think stock market's been fighting the Fed? I think the stock market's been fighting the bond market. And the messages <laughs> from the bond market, I, I think, have been telling a more accurate story. And... There was a disconnect there for a while, certainly a, a big part of the rally in January. Now I think the, the equity market is coming to terms with the fact that the, the job is not done for the Fed. They probably have to hike at least maybe once or twice more than what was even built into expectations a week ago because the inflation data continues to be, uh, I think, too high for the Fed's comfort zone. And now I think the market, uh, the equity market, is is adjusting not only its expectations, but some of the embedded leadership trends that I think were sending a different message in January. Uh, Greg, do the different indicators in the market really agree with one another? Are they pointing in the same direction? Because you have things like uh, at least until recently, really pricing in price cuts, rate cuts across the board. At the same time, we've got a very tight labor market. We've got a really inverted yield curve. Where does this all up add up to? Yeah, so it has to be reconciled, David. Um, and so uh, I agree with Lizanne. Uh, the, the equity market is fighting the bond market. The bond market is telling you with the inversion in the curve, and it just priced out the cuts, but it's still telling you that uh, rough roads are ahead in terms of the economy it's concerned, yet risk markets have been flying up until recently. And so I think what 2023 is really going to be about 
is reconciling those two markets. Uh, so you can't have an inverted yield curve that's predictive of a recession uh, and equities and risk markets uh, rallying as hard as uh, they've been. So I think uh, it's just the start of it, to be honest with you. Well, well, listen, I wonder about that reconciliation, where it's going to end up, because there are a lot of indicators in the economy that say it's pretty strong still. There's a lot of growth, particularly consumer sentiment, a lot of consumer buying still going on. Certainly we have a tight labor market. At the same time, we keep adding employees, but the productivity is not going up. Yeah, and I think that's what's embedded in this odd mix of some measures showing pretty weak economic data, particularly uh, fourth quarter, not GDP, but the real final sales to on the domestic side. That's kind of a cleaner way of looking at the economy that takes out the inventory effects as well as some of the trade effects. And that was barely in positive territory, yet you had this, you know, boom in job creation in January. I think there may have been some seasonal adjustments that uh, kind of wreak havoc with that number and may help to explain why there is that disconnect. But, you know, what we've been talking about is this, the rolling nature of how this cycle is unfolding, not just in terms of the economy. We've been calling it a rolling recession where there are pockets of the economy, uh, certainly housing many of the consumer goods oriented segments of the economy that were big beneficiaries of the lockdown phase. Um, those are in recession territory. That's where we have been seeing not just disinflation, but outright deflation. But we've had the offsetting more recent strength on the services side. Services is a larger employer. That's helped to explain why the job market has been relatively healthy. The real problem right now is that we, we still have the sticky services inflation on the high side, but we're starting to lose the offset of deflation on the some of the goods categories. You saw a tick back up in used uh, car prices. I think, you know, retailers have worked off a lot of the inventory that was sort of extreme in its excess even just a few months ago. And so what, what we may see happening is even if we start to see some retreat on the services side, we're getting a little bit of an uncomfortable lift again within the inflation data on the good side. Not exactly what any of us uh, and certainly the Fed wants to see. So, Greg, pick up on that, specifically the inflation data, because one of the issues is the so called super core that as I understand it is the core inflation less taking out the housing issue. And that seems to not be going in a favorable way for the Fed. What does that tell the Fed? 50 basis points next time or just do 25 more often? Well, the Fed is kind of stuck here uh, over the near term. Uh, the markets now have changed pricing pretty radically, where now after today, it's a 50 percent chance of a 50 basis point hike in Mar March. Up until recently, it was barely 25, uh, and there were many market players who were suggesting that they're already done, and maybe the last 25. So uh, the inflation data has not really uh, moved in their favor. But the services is tied to the labor market. And I think the trick that we have in terms of shaking out inflation in this economy is that it's really hard to shake out services inflation when you have such strong labor markets. Uh, and so we're at a record unemployment rate. Uh, and so I think the Fed believes now that in order to get inflation under control, they have to do more in terms of weakening uh, the labor market. Thanks so much to Lizanne Saunders and Greg Peters. They were going to be staying with us as we turn to what a full year of war in Ukraine means for investors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. 
That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Actually, the market did cheer for Carter for about one hour Monday morning. Then arrived the first of several indications that when it came to the details of a comprehensive Mideast agreement, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat might just possibly have been attending two different summits. Investors got the jitters about the possibility that it might all come unglued, and that provided a perfect excuse to resume worrying about less cosmic matters, like whether an ambitious young investor could really find wealth and happiness with the prime rate approaching 10%. Oh, fragile bird of peace, where have you flown? That was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in September of 1978 when then-President Carter was working on what seemed to be miracles in the Middle East and the markets just seemed to be shrugging it all off. The number one movie that week was Animal House with John Belushi and the number one song was, believe it or not, Boogie Oogie Oogie by A Taste of Honey, which I'm not going to try to sing. Still with us are Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab and Greg Peters of PGM. So, Greg, I won't ask you to sing it either, but give us a sense from an Thank investor's you. point of view, a bond investor in particular, Given what you and Lizanne have been talking about in the markets, what does a bond investor do right now? Uh, I think they sit and wait. Uh, we've had a pretty big move uh, in risk assets. I still believe there's some repricing uh, in the bond market. If you look at the shape of the curve, you know it has to be reconciled within the bond market, too. So if we do hit a soft landing, then the inverted yield curve uh, can't be at its extreme level that we see today. Um, uh, and then vice versa, if we enter a recession, then uh, it's, it's more reaffirmed. But I think the pressure for yields uh, over the near term is higher, not lower. At the same time, though, once yields get above 4%, all is equal, uh, we get a lot more excited around investing in the sovereign bond market here in the U.S. So, Lizanda, what about a stock picker? What should they do? Well, one of the things we were saying during the the sort of heart or maybe I should say heat of the January rally was to 
to fade the low quality, high beta, non-profitable, heavily shorted trades that had kicked back in and lean more into quality factors. I think when you take a factor-based approach, essentially investing based on characteristics, one of the things investors should do is focus on factors that represent things that are dear from a macro perspective. So we're in a declining earnings revision, declining forward earnings estimate environment. So look for companies with positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprises. We're obviously in a rising interest rate environment. Look for strength of balance sheet with high cash levels, uh, low debt, companies with pricing power in a more constrained demand environment. So kind of lean into up quality and and fade the the down quality that I think was disconnected from the the fundamentals uh, uh, at a more macro uh, level. And, And we have already started to see a reversal there. Lizanne, one last one to you from your point of view. Are we looking at a new world of higher prices? And not just because of energy and the disruption of energy because of Ukraine, but also some of the disruption or change, at least in globalization, in labor markets. I think we're we're in a now secular environment of more volatility in inflation, in commodity prices, in geopolitics. And I think that, you know, the era of the great moderation, I think, is definitively over. That was the era of abundant access to cheap goods, cheap energy, cheap labor, and, and that those ships have, have sailed. And in particular, demographics, I think, is reshaping this next secular phase here, and it's just not going to look like the 20 years pre-pandemic. Do you agree with that, Greg? I do. I do indeed. That's just one of the many uh, secular shifts. So I definitely agree with that thematic. Okay. Thank you both very much for being back with us. Next time, I promise we'll do boogie, oogie, oogie together. Uh, (laughs) Many thanks to Lizanne Saunders, to Charles Schwab, and Greg Peters of PGIM. The promise of digital transformation of finance has excited investors for years now, with particular attention given recently to blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and yes, the prospects of regulation. Bob Diamond's Atlas Merchant Capital has been an early adopter and investor, and we welcome him back now to Wall Street Week. Great to have you here, Bob. Thank you for joining us. Bring us up to speed on where we are on blockchain, on digital finance, where we are, because there have been some bumps along the road. I mean, there have been some scandals along the road, some people have lost some money. Is it slowing things down? Not really. I mean, I, I think in many ways, FTX and, and many of the other issues that we've had to deal with over the last year have definitely had an impact. Um, and, you know, crypto is a very broad term, but I think of the space really is more around technology. There's no doubt in my mind that we're going to have a digital version of the U.S. dollar. It just makes sense. There's no doubt in my mind that blockchain technology will continue to be implemented in most of the big uh, financial institutions. It just it makes things faster. It makes them cheaper. Uh, and, and in this day and age, having a digital version of the uh, of the U.S. dollar or most major fiat currencies just makes total sense. As an investor in these, I'm curious, how much of that is consumer facing and how much of that is, as it were, in the plumbing? Yeah. Uh, you can have the banks use the blockchain for their yeah. transactions and things. You have the Fed do that. That's different from selling it to the public. Well, as you know, we've been an early investor in Circle, which is U.S. digital coin. And that's very much business to business. It's about the large institutional payments, which traditionally, you know, have gone from bank to bank. And you and I have waited two or three days to, to have those types of transactions uh, take place. With blockchain, with the Internet, with digital currency, um, you know, using USDC, these things can be done anytime, 24-7, instantaneously, and without an intermediary. And I think, 
the dramatic uh, impact this will have on kind of the treasury functions of corporates and financial institutions and around the world over the next five to ten years will be significant. And I think, to me, the positive of everything that went on with FTX, for example, is that people now understand the difference between offshore and onshore. Hmm. And Circle, um, which again is, is U.S. digital coin, uh, operates within the U.S. regulatory perimeter, um, really, really embraces regulation. Uh, any sound business wants sound regulation, um, is very, very transparent about what the portfolio is backing the USDC, which is cash and, and short-term treasury bills where a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And I think, David, at the end of the day, um, um, is it best for our government, for the Federal Reserve, to be developing the digital cur currency or the private sector, people like Circle, to develop it and then have it properly regulated? And I think that's the way most um, technical innovations, whether it's the Fedwire or, or, or the SWIFT payment system, have, have come about. So from your perspective, which is a terribly valuable one, is it best to leave the regulation right where it is right now because it works basically for people like you that, and your companies, it works fine? Or are there things that could be regulated that would actually help you, that would buttress your business? Uh, or is there some other way yeah. of doing this? What, what do you think is the right way to go for the U.S. government? So I think there's a couple of buckets here. I think number one, operating onshore within the U.S. regulatory perimeter is critical. And I think that that was writ large during FTX when people realized what was going on in the Bahamas outside of the U.S. regulatory perimeter. Since then, the market share of USDC, which is within that perimeter, has dramatically improved relative to Tether, which is offshore, somewhat murky in terms of what's in that portfolio. So we're seeing the impact already. The next step in this is who is the regulator? So right now, the states are regulating payments. And will it be the Fed? Will it be the SEC? And what's the next step for the federal government in terms of assigning regulatory responsibility? We embrace getting those decisions made in, 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 uh, in going forward with, with, frankly, a more transparent, um, uh, more regulated environment. Proper regulation, good regulation, strong regulation is what good, strong companies want. And I think it will help us get to the next step in, in digital currencies. Thank you so much, Bob. It's always great to have you here on Wall Street Week. That's Bob Diamond. He is the founder and CEO of Atlas Merchant Capital, who is very invested, as you can tell, in digital finance. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. 
U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're welcome once again our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you as always. Let's start with those Fed minutes. We were all waiting for them. They came out. I'm not sure they indicated the Fed is heading in any different direction than what you've been saying. Those minutes were superseded by history in terms of the strong CPI print, the incredible job market creation, and uh, the retail sales. So I don't think there was anything much uh, informative uh, in them. Look, I think we've got an extremely difficult economy to read. On the one hand, we got a set of very, very strong statistics. I think the data are coming in in a way that confirms uh, the view that I have had for a long time that inflation does not get back to 2% without a meaningful uh, slowdown in economic activity. Yes, inflation may over some intervals uh, come down, but that's really mean reversion from the transitory increases that took place but that's not enough to bring us to enduring 2%. The other big uncertainty that we have is that while so-called coincident indicators, things that move right along with the economy, look very strong, there are a variety of leading indicators that are more troubling. Inventories look to be building up relative to sales, Firms are reporting concerns about their order books. It looks like uh, the business sector has a lot of people on hand for the level of output they're producing. And consumer savings are being uh, depleted with a low uh, savings rate. And who knows where the market's going to go next? Uh, Laura, let me ask you the the scary question. Uh, At a time when you and others were concerned about inflation and Jay Powell was saying, don't worry, if it happens, we have the tools to deal with it. Is it possible the Fed does not have the tools it needs to really get inflation under control, given the circumstances right now? Look, you can always stop the car by hitting the brakes hard enough. But that doesn't mean you can stop the car without the car skidding and sliding and, and hitting things. And so, yeah, the Fed can stop inflation, but uh, whether it can stop inflation with a soft landing without impacts on economic activity, that's been very much uh, in doubt uh, from the beginning here since we set off uh, this inflation. and. My own sense is that it continues uh, to be very much in doubt. And as the figures have come in, and particularly the 
figures on non-housing services look to be running way above uh, target level. I think the chances of a soft landing, which look to be getting better, are now receding um, a bit. Uh, what the timing will be, uh, that is hard to know, but we don't have historical examples when unemployment gets below four and inflation gets above four of getting through the situation without having a recession at some point. And I think that's a powerful historical truth. And I think it's one that's relevant uh, to our current situation. Larry, this week, as you know, marks one year now uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine when Russia invaded. Obviously, there's been uh, horrific costs in terms of lives and also in terms of the damage done to the Ukrainian economy. But what about globally? What have been the global economic effects from your perspective of this conflict? It's been devastating for poor people in poor countries around the world that have had to deal with food price uh, hikes on a very substantial uh, scale, that have had to deal for some uh, interval with uh, higher uh, energy uh, prices. It's accelerated uh, the concerns about the fracturing of uh, the global economy and that will ultimately, whatever its impacts on us, I think have some substantially adverse impacts uh, for poor countries where historically exports have been a major uh, route uh, to economic uh, growth. Look, I think the world's going to have to step up in uh, the international economic uh, area. We're going to have to spend a lot ultimately supporting the Ukrainian economy and reconstructing the uh, Ukrainian uh, economy. We've got substantial increases for that reason and for others of refugees, but that doesn't make the question of climate, that doesn't make the question of preventing the next uh, pandemic, that doesn't make the question of uh, poverty uh, it doesn't make what's happening in the Sahel any less urgent. And so this is a time when we're going to need a lot of imagination, a lot of energy from uh, global policymakers. Well, when you talk about the world stepping up, one of the institutions we traditionally look to is the World Bank. We received word on Friday that President Biden will nominate Ajay Banga. He's the former MasterCard CEO to the position. What do you think about that? And I guess as important, what st stands in front of Mr. Banga if, in fact, he becomes the head of the World Bank? Ajay Banga was seen as a visionary and highly, highly successful uh, leader of uh, MasterCard, which was unique or substantial in its uh, global uh, vision and in its commitment to inclusion of a very, very wide range of uh, people in financial uh, services. Of course, the World Bank is a very different kind of institution than any other uh, bank having 
global development as, uh, as its uh, central uh, mission. And it's going to need a transformation of a kind it has not seen uh, probably since uh, Robert McNamara was its leader more than 40 years ago. So I think that Ajay Banga has a huge opportunity ahead of him to bring about a transformation, but in a world where his shareholders have really serious political challenges um, at home, it is not going to be easy. And finally, Larry, uh, let's come revisit Israel, something you raised on this program earlier. You saw ahead some possible risks, not just for the politics in Israel of Bibi Netanyahu's aggressive pursuit of reform in the judiciary, but also some possible effects to the economy, particularly the tech sector. We're now seeing it even with respect to the shekel. Uh, what is going on in Israel now? And from your perspective, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Where is it? I'm very concerned. The first reading of the Judicial reform uh, passed through uh, the Knesset. Uh, that was very troubling uh, legislation, not because ultimately judicial reform is, is important uh, in Israel, in my view, but that particular set of judicial reforms driven through by a narrow majority in a hurry, at a fragile political uh, moment, will raise profound uh, questions for the owners and deployers of capital, both in Israel and around the world. And I think it is a matter of very substantial economic importance for the remarkable economic story that Israel has been that uh, we move uh, from a phase of driven legislation to a phase of uh, compromise and deliberation as judicial reform uh, moves forward. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much for being here. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, forget the NFL. The big banks go for the real money in sports, English football clubs. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. You can't keep a good bank down. Major U.S. banks have had their ups and downs in recent years from the near disaster of the great financial crisis. At Morgan Stanley, when we were having a hard time, it's my responsibility. I'll take that. To the major bank revival in the wake of the pandemic. We're back. In other words, the activity levels and what goes on day to day is bigger than it was before the pandemic. Recently, things have been getting a bit tougher again for the banks with trading down. You are watching Goldman Sachs come down to earth quite a bit. Provisions for credit card losses rising and concerns over an economic downturn. 
But American consumers, eventually, the excess money they have is running out. That'll probably happen sometime mid-year next year. All of which has led the banks to start trimming their sales through job cuts and reduced compensation. Bank of America is now joining the ranks of many of its peers in considering job cuts. But now, the major U.S. banks have found a new land of plenty across the Atlantic Ocean in the high-flying world of European football. Please don't call it soccer. I own my own soccer team. I know. You just said the word soccer. Did not. As the big banks step up big time to help fund astronomical prices for football clubs. The Premier League's back. With English Premier League's Chelsea setting a world record for a sports franchise, $5.2 billion in a deal banked by Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank. It's a Chelsea thing. Not to be outdone, arguably the most successful of the English clubs, Manchester United, is up for bids, which are expected to shatter the Chelsea record and quite possibly top $8 billion. Bear in mind, this stock was trading at around $4 billion in terms of market cap, so it would be a 50% premium. The bids came in at the end of last week, with a Qatari consortium relying on Bank of America and rival bidder, British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, turning to Goldman Sachs. Welcome to the Republic of Liverpool. And if that isn't enough, Liverpool FC is waiting in the wings for a possible sale, working with, yes, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Premier League TV revenues are so much higher than uh, anywhere else in, in the world. So, when we take a look at the big banks' trading revenues, maybe we should break out what they're making on trading football clubs over in England. Though the stuffy banker of yesterday might think it all just a bit silly. Sandemandel Hogwarts. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.